Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. If you're a longtime listener of the show, then you've heard me discuss what we do know about sex. Today, however, we're going to be flipping the script and discussing what we don't know. It turns out that there are lots of things we think we know about sex that might not actually be true. One example of this is the famed G-spot. Everything you think you know about the G-spot is probably wrong. So that's one of the things that we'll be discussing in this episode. We're also going to dive into a lot of other common things people believe about sex that might not be entirely true either, such as the popular idea that peeing after sex prevents urinary tract infections. To help us set the record straight on sex, my guest today is Dr. Lisa Dawn Hamilton. She is an associate professor of psychology at Mount Allison University in Sackville, where she teaches about sex, gender, and neuroscience. Her research focuses on monogamy, sex education, and the relationships between stress, sex, and hormones. Lisa Dawn also has a fantastic podcast of her own called Do We Know Things that corrects common misconceptions about sex. I can't wait for this conversation, so let's dive in. Hi, Lisa Dawn, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm really excited to debunk some common myths and misconceptions about sex and the human body with you. But before we get into all of that, I'd like to start by asking you about your professional journey. So how did you get into the wild, wonderful, and sometimes wacky world of sex research in the first place? That's an excellent question. I actually started out as a sex educator at an organization called Options for Sexual Health in Vancouver. And I was doing that while doing my undergraduate research. And I just happened while being an undergrad to come across someone who was doing sex research So she was my TA, it was Sari Van Anders at Simon Fraser University, and she invited me to start doing research with her in her lab. And I knew that I was interested in hormones, and I knew that I I was interested in sex ed, and finding out that I could do things about hormones and sex all together was this very exciting thing. And so that's really what got me started. And then after undergrad, when I was looking at grad schools, again, I knew I wanted to do something either in sex or hormones. And I was able to find a program that allowed me to do both at the University of Texas at Austin, where I worked with Dr. Cindy Meston, who was my sex supervisor, and Dr. Yvonne Delville, who was my hormones and neuroscience supervisor. Well, you've worked with some amazing people. And actually, Cindy Meston was one of my recent guests on the podcast. And we talked all about the various reasons why people have sex. So thanks for sharing that with us. So you run a podcast called Do We Know Things? And one of the things you do in that show is talk about what we don't know about sex. And most sex podcasts, including my own, are about what we do know. So Mm -hmm. I love that you're taking a different approach because the longer I've been in this field, the more I've realized how much there is that we don't yet know about human sexuality and how some of the things that we thought we knew have turned out to be totally wrong. So Mm -hmm. let's take a look at some of those things that we don't know. And as a starting point, let's dive into the famous Grafenberg spot or G-spot as it's more commonly known. 
pretty much everyone who's listening to this has heard of the G-Spot before. There are countless magazine and internet articles on how to find it and stimulate it. And there are even doctors performing G-Spot amplification procedures where they provide these injections that are supposed to quadruple the size of this area. So tell us, Lisa Dawn, what do we really know about the G-Spot and what don't we know? Sure. And it's so funny because there is no spot that is the G-spot, but it's still easier to just use that name instead of saying that, you know, the anterior wall of the vagina or the uh, circumvaginal or clitoral urethral vaginal complex. Like those are just not catchy names. But essentially, when digging into the research, I found a lot of debate over the years of some people saying, yes, it's a spot. No, it's not a spot. And what I find very interesting is most of that debate is happening between male researchers. uh, And there seemed to be very little conversation that included people with actual vaginas (laughs) that were (laughs) involved in, in this research debate. But essentially, based on fMRI research and self-report research and watching people have ejaculatory orgasms where they're stimulating that area, it really seems that what is happening is the stimulation is targeting all sorts of that spongy tissue, both the clitoris, urethral zone, or like the urethral sponge, skein's glands, a whole bunch of things are probably being stimulated and are probably engorged at that time. And there's no actual spot. And Cosmo even released a, like they have a whole webpage about this where they're apologizing for using the word G-spot and promoting the spot. <laughs> yeah, so that's my understanding of it too, is that the G-spot itself is not a distinct anatomic entity. You know, and they've done those cadaver studies and they've tried Mm -hmm. to look for it. And basically the conclusion is that, you know, it's sort of where the vagina, the urethra and the clitoris all intersect. And that's where that term you mentioned comes in, the clitoro-urethro-vaginal complex, which just doesn't (laughs) roll off the tongue (laughs) so well. So I I think that is why a lot of people still stick to the term G-spot. I mean, I know I still say G-spot sometimes just because people kind of know what I'm talking about, but it's not what people think that it is. So, you know, what are your thoughts on like, say the doctors who are out there doing G-spot amplification? Like, (laughs) is this a good idea or not? I think it's so scary that people are going in for these G-spot amplifications when there is no spot to amplify and there's no evidence that it actually improves arousal. But we've set up this idea that this is like this magic spot is something that everyone has to have. And this is like the right way to orgasm. And I know in Lori Mintz in her book, Clitorate talks about this idea that it, it sort of the discovery of the G-spot took us back to the Freudian days of, you know, there's a better orgasm if you get it from interior penetration versus exterior penetration. And I find that really frustrating. Like for some people, that type of stimulation is awesome and will make them have orgasms. And for some people, it's not. And that's okay. (laughs) And so I think the perpetuation of like, oh, get this shot so that you can have the proper kind of orgasm is really problematic. Totally agree. And, you know, I also get a lot of women who write me through my website who say that, you know, these G-spot stimulation techniques don't work for them and they can't find Mm -hmm. it and they think that there's something wrong with them. So what would you say to women 
for whom, you know, these G-spot guides, the stimulation don't work in terms of, you know, their pursuit of sexual pleasure? Mm -hmm. I think that everyone has different things that work for them and that they can focus on what does work as opposed to potentially being frustrated at what doesn't. Also, though, I think with if you're interested in that interior wall G-spot stimulation, often it helps to be aroused first. So not using that to stimulate the arousal. So getting that area engorged, and then it's potentially easier to hit the, the parts that feel good. But again, not everyone is going to have that happen. And that's totally okay. And I love everything you just said. Yes, different things, different forms of stimulation work for different people. And so it's all about mm -hmm. exploring your body and not trying mm -hmm. to replicate somebody else's experience or trying to create something in your body that might not work the same that it works for for other people. And so it's okay if you have different routes to arousal and pleasure. The important thing is figuring out what works for you. So since we're on the subject of anatomy, let's talk about the clitoris. I've heard a lot of people say that the clitoris has just as many nerve endings as the penis, and some people who even say that it has twice as many nerve endings as the penis. <laughs> and some people even throw out this very specific number. They say there are 8,000 nerve endings in the clitoris. Now, I know you've done a whole episode on your podcast about what we do and don't know about the clitoris, and you thoroughly debunked this idea that we know exactly how many nerve endings are in the human clitoris. And in fact, it turns out that the 8,000 nerve endings figure actually seems to come from a study that didn't even involve humans, and it was based on cows. So <laughs> please tell us, Lisa Dunn, what don't we know about the clitoris and how many nerve endings it has? Uh, well, I can say definitively, I scoured everywhere and there are no studies about how many nerve endings are in the clitoris or in the penis in humans. That just does not exist. We do not know that thing. <laughs> and as you said, it, it's true. One person, uh, Jessica Pinn on Instagram, who has an account that talks a lot about clitoral anatomy, seems to have uh, narrowed it down to a book about bovine health. And I'm blanking on the name of the actual book, but she has posted a screenshot of it. And that seems to be the source of the estimation that there are 8,000 nerve endings in the clitoris, but not in humans, in cows. <laughs> and it's so interesting because I've seen that figure before. And, and I've seen these sayings about how, you know, the clitoris has just as many nerve endings as the penis or twice as many. I've even seen that appear in human sexuality textbooks. And, you know, it's taken as a statement of fact. And I think the work that you're doing, especially through your podcast, is so important because it challenges a lot of these things that we just assume to be true. They, they're just repeated so many times and we see them appearing on social media, in popular magazines, internet articles, Wikipedia pages, textbooks. Like We just assume this stuff is true. But when you start digging deeper and looking for the truth, you realize just how little we actually know and that some of the things we thought we knew are totally wrong. And related to this, a few episodes back, I had Hallie Lieberman on the podcast. We were talking about the history of sex toys. And, you know, there's this popular idea out there that 
at one point, doctors were manually stimulating women to orgasm in their offices, and they invented the vibrator to cut down on the length of office visits for these women who had been diagnosed with hysteria. And when Hallie went back and scoured the literature, she actually didn't find any evidence of this actually happening. You know, And so that's another one of those things that sort of seeped into popular consciousness that just isn't true. It isn't backed up by the data and the research. So thanks again for the work that you're doing here. So we've talked about the G-spot and the clitoris. Let's talk about the penis for a moment, because there are certainly things we think we know about the penis that might not be entirely true either. And one of them is average penis size, right? We've all heard facts and figures about this, and some of them are drastically different from one another. So I'm curious, what's your sense on this? Do we actually know what the average penis size really is? That's a good question. And I mean, there are studies on this, but they seem to be, the, the samples are often weird. So I think there's one where they got people to come in a tent at, on spring break somewhere in Florida <laughs> and measure their penis length. Um, another one was uh, through a condom company and they had people measure them themselves and then send in their measurements. And so I don't know if a definitive study has actually been done that we can say, okay, yes, this is the average penis size. But my understanding is many of the average are, averages are kind of hovering around five to five and a half inches erect for the average. Does that sound like what you've heard? That that tracks with what I've heard. And, you know, there, there are several studies of this, but as you noted, they all have limitations. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things to think about here when we're talking about penis size measurements is who is willing to participate in a study of penis size in the first place. And so exactly. if you're just studying like drunk spring breakers <laughs> who are willing to <laughs> drop trow in a tent and have their penis measured, you know, there might be a, a selection bias there in terms of who's willing mm -hmm. to do that. And then it also depends on who's doing the measurements. Is it a trained clinician who's doing it or is it the person themselves? Because we know that, you know, people might have a tendency to overestimate what their penis size is or measure it from the most generous angle. And then there's also the fact that we really only tend to measure length. We don't measure girth. And, right. you know, when we talk about things like what is it that brings, say, women pleasure, when we're talking about cisgender heterosexual women, and actually in the research, they report that girth matters more than length. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we don't actually really have great estimates for girth because we're so focused on length right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in a lot of these studies too, they're not actually measuring erect penis length. They're measuring stretched, flaccid penis length, right? Right, right. <laughs> you know, and so there was also this study I saw recently where I think it was a study out of Japan where they measured cadavers, like dead men's penises, oh. and they stretched them <laughs> out, you know, to, to create the measurement. And then they were actually correlating that with the size of their nose, which was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. You know how I said this is like sort of a wacky world of sex research yeah. sometimes? Yeah. So we're literally, well, not us, but some people are literally measuring dead men's penises and noses <laughs> and seeing if there's a relationship between them. Wacky stuff. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the refractory period which mm -hmm. is defined as a period of time lasting from minutes to days during which no additional orgasms are possible. 
And people often say, and again, you see this in textbooks, that if you have a penis, you have this refractory period, but if you have a vulva, you don't. And this is why women can have multiple orgasms, but men can't. And a lot of this stuff gets traced back to the pioneering work of Masters and Johnson in the 1960s, who were studying human sexual response long before we had the modern technologies that we do today. And when I did a deep dive into this for a blog post I wrote a while back, I actually found that there's surprisingly little work on the refractory period and that it's really poorly understood. So I'm curious to hear if you have a take on this. What do we and don't we know about the refractory period and multiple orgasms? That's really interesting because I haven't dug into this too much yet. So now I'm like, oh, I need to do an episode <laughs> on that. But one thing I'll note is the if there is a refractory period, it tends to be tied to ejaculation specifically. And so people who have trained themselves usually through tantric meditation practices to have orgasms but not ejaculate can have many, many orgasms quite easily. Also, one of my collaborators, Richard Wassersug and his colleague, Eric Waboo, they have a paper, I think, in the Archives of Sexual Behavior where they're talking about specifically male multiple orgasms. And one of the things that they both study is prostate cancer. And there does seem to be a link between people who have their prostates removed and being able to have multiple orgasms without any sort of refractory period. That, of course, though, as you've said, like there is plenty of people who can have maybe their refractory period is one second or they don't have one at all and they can, you know, get right back into it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I found interesting about just talking to people and hearing from people about their sexual experiences is that they're way more variable than the research might lead us to believe, right? So for example, mm -hmm. if you look at popular human sexuality textbooks, they tend to present the male sexual response cycle as being just this one thing. You know, you have, uh, you know, excitement or arousal, and then there's that plateau phase and then orgasm and then resolution, and then that's it. And that's like one mm -hmm. and done, right? But <laughs> yeah. men's sexual response can be a lot more variable than that. You know, I've heard mm -hmm. from some men, for example, where one, where they actually find it really difficult to have an orgasm, but then once they do, like the floodgates open and they can have multiple mm. orgasms back to back. I've also heard from some men who can have multiple orgasms, but they maybe can only have them if it's like a really exciting sexual experience, like maybe if it's a threesome or group right. thing, mm -hmm. or maybe they can have multiple orgasms, but they often stop at one because they're just like tired, right? And so, right, right. you know, they could have more than one if they wanted. And, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've also talked to, to Nikki Prousey about this because she's an orgasm researcher. And basically, a, a lot of what she's found in her work is that what we think we know about orgasm and multiple orgasms in general, like, is wrong. And like, how do you mm -hmm. even define something like multiple orgasms? You know, what counts is <laughs> having more than one orgasm? Exactly. Yeah. Is it one after another after another? Or is it one and then another one a few minutes later or a few many minutes later. I, yeah, it's unclear to me what the actual definition is. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, how do you define these things? And if you ask people to define it, they're going to come up with their own definitions for everything. Yeah. You know, and this is one of the fun things about, you know, doing Twitter polls occasionally is to just throw a question out there and see how people respond. Like I once asked people, you know, what's the minimum number of participants you need for something to count as an orgy? And like people are all over the board. So I'm going to ask you, Lisa Don, <laughs> what is the definitive minimum number to count as an orgy? <laughs> Hmm. I feel like five. Mm -hmm. 
Because I feel like there's threesomes, foursomes, and then beyond that, then that, does that make it an orgy? <laughs> and, you know, five really seems to be the most common number, but there are okay. some people... <laughs> there are some people who said, you know, an orgy starts at three. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's fascinating. Like some people count a threesome the same as as an orgy. And so mm-hmm. I think that speaks to the importance of anytime we're doing sex research. Like we have to take a lot of fucking care in how we ask our <laughs> <Yes>. questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Because we don't know if people are thinking about or defining these things in the same way as us. And so I'm curious if you know, all this work that you've done on, you know, what do we and don't we know about sex? How has that influenced your own approach to research and, you know, the way you ask questions and so forth? Uh, It has made me more stressed out about it for sure, because (laughs) I find I am second guessing everything because as I'm looking into the research literature, trying to answer very specific questions and realizing that, yeah, it's defined differently by different people or it's very unclear in this study or not this study. So it's definitely made me think through more and be more clear with my own questions. And actually, one example of a question that I really, or that I use in my class, something that I really like, and it's an example from the Guide to Getting It On, so Paul, Paul Joannides' book, that he used to have a survey on his website, and one of the questions was, instead of saying, have you ever had an incestuous relationship, which you know is going to get people's hackles up, he says, considering your aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, et cetera, like and lists all these relatives and then says, which of these have you had a sexual or romantic relationship? Um, <laughs> just sort of like this normalizing, but very clearly laying out all these things. So not letting anyone define incest for themselves saying like, these are the categories I'm looking for. Have you had sex with any of these people? And so thinking of the the need for clarity in our questions has really been affected by my doing this podcast and not being able to find the answers that I want to find. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, relating to that incest question that you brought up, you know, different people define that in different ways. And so some people would count step-siblings having a relationship mm-hmm. together as being incest, even though they're not blood relatives. And so again, that mm-hmm. points to the importance of you know, asking the right questions in the right way to get the most useful data. And Mm -hmm. related to this, something I've heard you talk about on your podcast is, you know, can we ever do like truly objective research or are we always bringing some bias into it in some way? You know, in, in thinking about the way I've done my own sex research, you know, I can point to blind spots that I've had in the past because I just didn't necessarily always think about and consider other perspectives. And it wasn't like I was intentionally bringing bias. It's just mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about some of these things. So one example of this is when I was doing my research on sexual fantasies, a, a question that I neglected to ask people was, what is the perspective from which you see your fantasies? So is it from that sort of first-person point of view where you're like in the fantasy seeing it through your own eyes? Or are you watching it more from a third-person perspective, like it's a movie? And Mm -hmm. I know I've talked about this on the podcast before. I did an episode on dreams and fantasies a while back. And, you know, when I have dreams and fantasies, like it's always like I'm watching a movie and I'm a character in it. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of Mm assume that everybody's mental imagery worked the same way. Again, I did a Twitter poll. Turns out I was wrong. (laughs) People are all (laughs) over the map in terms of how they see things. So Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that. Can we ever truly do objective research? Do And how can we do research better? 
Yeah. So I don't think anyone can ever do objective research, whether we're talking about sex or really anything, because we're all subjective humans that are bringing our subjective experiences to the world. So even our decision of what we're going to study is influenced by our own past, the things we've been exposed to, potentially grant funding. <laughs> like There's all these factors that drive the subjectivity of our research. However, I think we can by owning that bias and by owning our subjectivity, and this has been talked a lot about by feminist philosophers of science, we can then, when if we put it out there as like, this is my perspective, this is where I'm coming from, then others who have different perspectives or uh, want to approach it from a different way can all do it from their perspective. The idea being like, if we're all <laughs> having different biases and owning our biases, like somehow we could get to some sort of truth if there is one. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's funny, they do this a lot in qualitative research where people sort of acknowledge their their personal biases that might influence how they're interpreting the data because there's a lot of subjectivity mm -hmm. when you're doing qualitative work. But you don't see that happen in quantitative numerical work. And, mm -hmm. you know, back when I was a graduate student, I always thought it was odd. Like when I was reading a qualitative study and these people are talking about themselves and their identities and these other things that they're bringing to the work. And I'm like, you know, initially I was kind of like, well, this this shouldn't be about you, but I see it right, very right. differently now. Or I'm like, mm -hmm. actually, you know, it is about you in a way. <laughs> right. And, you know, sort of owning those potential biases that you might bring, I think can be very valuable and add a different level or layer of nuance to the research. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with sex, we often think whatever we are used to is, or whatever's the norm is the way it's done. But this really stood out to me a few years ago. I had conversations with two heterosexual men, like on two different days, like back to back. And one of them talked about how he hated in porn, how they always showed like people coming on other people. He was like, why would you ever want to pull out and not ejaculate inside a woman? Like that is the only way that would be satisfying. And then the next day, someone else was talking about, they're like, like, I don't know who doesn't love like spraying their cum all over somebody. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you do that? That's the best part, right? And so like a day apart, like these exact opposite perspectives, but they both thought like that their way was the only way. <laughs> Gosh, and that reminds me of this study I've been meaning to do. And it's sort of, I, I call it the where do you come study. And <laughs> it's as far as I know, it never been done before. And mm. I think it's interesting to think about exactly what you're saying, like different people kind of prefer to have their orgasms in different ways. And so for some people, mm -hmm. it's during penetration. Some people, it might be on their partner, but it might be on different parts of the body. It, it might be looking at themselves in a mirror and, you know, coming on the mirror. Like there, there are so many different mm -hmm. ways that, you know, people mm -hmm. do this during masturbation and during sex. So if you want to partner on the Where Do You Come study, let me know because <laughs> yeah. I think the results would be fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do that. <laughs> so we have much more to discuss, including whether peeing after sex prevents UTIs, as well as what Lisa Dawn has found by studying the brains of monogamous and non-monogamous men. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. If you've ever wanted to start your own podcast, you need the best recording program out there, and it's Zencaster. I've tried a lot of different platforms for this podcast, but Zencaster's quality is unparalleled. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com. 
Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Dawn Hamilton, and we've been talking about what we don't know about sex. So another common belief people have about sex is that peeing afterwards reduces the risk of developing urinary tract infections. And there are countless articles out there online. And in fact, I just did a quick search right before this podcast. And these are on many medical websites and sex ed websites. And they say that post-sex urination flushes out the bacteria, thereby reducing infection risk. So they're advising people to pee after sex. So what's the truth there? Does peeing after sex really prevent UTIs? There is absolutely no evidence or no documented evidence in the research literature that peeing after sex prevents UTIs. And even with that, so I saw on some medical websites, it would say there is no evidence that peeing after sex is useful for people with vaginas with short urethras to prevent UTIs after sex but you should still do it anyway. <laughs> it's sort of like because we it's so ingrained in us. And I actually have my own experience of that belief being ingrained. Like I was a devout peeing after sex person. I you know, told everyone that they had to do this. And I remember being at a conference and I think it was Debbie Herbenick and Dennis Fortenberry did a presentation on the actual biology of how peeing after sex was basically useless because by that time the bacteria, if there was bacteria, it was already up the urethra. And they like clearly laid out how this wouldn't work. And at that time I was like, nope, that's wrong. They're completely <laughs> wrong. There's no way this is right. <laughs> and then in my own personal life, I got out of the habit of peeing after sex and noticed that I wasn't getting raging UTIs. And then I started digging into this research. And so then I was at a place where I was I was able to actually believe that peeing after sex doesn't actually do anything. But it was interesting to see my own journey where even like presented with like clear biological evidence, I was like, no, that can't be true because of my experience. And that podcast episode is the one I've gotten the most feedback from, like angry feedback, <laughs> people <laughs> saying like, you're wrong and don't tell me what to do. And my message in it is really just, if you don't want to get up and go pee after you've had sex, you don't have to. Like, I'm not telling people <laughs> not to. But yeah, it got people's hackles up and people really felt strongly about peeing after sex. And I get that because I did too. And what you're saying, I think, is so important when it comes to correcting the record about some of these myths and misconceptions we have about sex in the human body is that these things become ingrained in us, right? Mm -hmm. And we start to believe them so strongly that mm -hmm. any type of evidence contrary to that, we have a hard time accepting. And so, you know, that's really the danger in a lot of these ideas is that 
we become so attached to them. We hear them repeated so much that Mm -hmm. we just assume that they're then true. And then it's really hard to break through that and correct the record. I'm curious, when you were doing your episode on this and you kind of did a deep dive, did you find out what the origins of this are? Like, when did people start saying you should pee after sex? Do we know where this idea comes from in the first place? It was unclear to me where it came from in the first place. So most, I tried to follow like a reference trail, but it kind of led to dead ends. So I'm I'm not sure how it orgi- originated, but in terms of the research, yeah, there's nothing saying that this is useful or helpful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's another thing too, is that sometimes you'll see something mentioned in say a scientific journal article and it's got a mm-hmm. reference. And then you go back to that reference and you're like, wait, where the hell is this thing <laughs> that this yes. person said? And it's like this game of like reference telephone where it's like, it yeah. keeps changing and morphing over time. And so like what you might be reading bears no resemblance to the original source. And, you know, again, that's another danger in some of this stuff. If people are sloppy with their references, you know, it's it's hard to go back and check their work and figure out exactly where this, you know, idea came from. And so that's why we need people to, you know, kind of do these deep dives and figure out what is really the truth there. Now, another topic I want to get into before we start discussing your own research is pubic hair. Specifically, Mm -hmm. what is the function or purpose of it? And how does pubic hair grooming affect STI risk? And the reason I ask this is because, you know, when it comes to the function of pubic hair, I've heard a few things. You know, some people say it's Mm -hmm. a protective cushion during sex. Some people say the purpose is to trap genital scents that are erotically pleasing or arousing. And when it comes to grooming, you know, I hear some people say that shaving or waxing increases your risk of STIs and other people say it decreases it. So people are just kind of all over the map there. So Mm -hmm. what do you think we do and don't know about the purpose of pubic hair and also how, as you say, pubic hair deforestation is linked (laughs) to STI risk. (laughs) Yes. Um, So in terms of the purpose of pubic hair, I think all of it is just is theoretical, right? So it's different theoretical perspectives. And there's no way I don't think that we can demonstrate like one is the true one, (laughs) which is problem with like, you know, evolutionary theories in general, any sort of theoretical thing is we never know. It's hard to go back in time to figure out how this happened. So all of the theories that you mentioned are ones that have been talked about in the literature. And there's, I think, some validity to all of them, but we don't know which is the the one true theory, if there is one. (laughs) (laughs) The true theory of pubic hair. (laughs) In terms of deforestation of pubic hair, uh, one thing we do know for sure is that it's reducing the incidence of pubic lice, crabs, that seems to have been plummeting over the years that pubic hair removal has gotten really big. And the, the de- there is also a debate about removal in terms of protection from STIs because removal often results in abrasions to the skin. And so there's more blood, there's more exposed tissue. Um, it can increase the risk of STI transmission, but even that research is sort of hard to do as well to really pin it down. And that's been part of the problem is so many questions I have. It's really hard to do a study to test STI risk and pubic hair removal, because to do an actual experiment on that would be very challenging and um, like also unethical, like applying STIs to people's skin, for example. 
Yeah, it's like, how do you test some of these things? Like, you can't do really a randomized controlled trial of pubic hair removal where it's like, okay, this group, you have to go out and get waxed. And this group, you have to shave. Uh, This group's going to use some nair. Um, This group (laughs) is not going to do any trimming or shaving at all. And then you're all going to go out and have sex and we're going to test you for STIs afterwards. Like, you can't do that kind of study. Like (laughs) you would never get funding to be able to do it. And so I think you hit on a really important point that, you know, we have a lot of ideas about some of these things, but we have to rely often on just the correlational data that's out there that makes it, you know, impossible to say cause and effect with some of these things. And, you know, if Mm -hmm. you think about people who might remove their pubic hair compared to people who don't, well, there might be differences in their sexual practices or the amount Mm. of sex that they're having and all of these other uncontrolled variables. And so how do you really figure out what the truth is there? Exactly. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about your research. Now, one of my favorite studies that you've conducted involved putting monogamous and non-monogamous men into brain scanners and looking at how their brains respond to sexual and romantic imagery. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found in that research? And does it tell us anything about maybe why different people seem to have different mating orientations? Sure. So in that study, I was interested in trying to get at whether the brains of monogamous and non-monogamous men would, how they would react to neutral, romantic, and sexual stimuli. And I was my theory was that they would their brains would look similar to the monogamous and non-monogamous voles. And so for anyone who doesn't know, voles are small rodents and they come in species that are socially monogamous and species that are more promiscuous and so don't pair bond or they just mate freely. <laughs> and so using, we know a lot about the brains of the monogamous and non-monogamous voles. And so I wanted to use that as a model to see, like, do men's brains also do this? And in response to sexual stimuli, everybody's brains just lit up like a Christmas tree, which is what happens with sexual stimuli. It's a very (laughs) potent stimulus. Um, And so we're showing them sexual, like explicit sexual pictures of heterosexual couples having sex. And so there was really no differences in the groups looking at sexual pictures. But the romantic pictures, which were people like gazing into each other's eyes or couples holding hands and walking through a, a meadow, <laughs> really <laughs> cheesy things like that. The monogamous men showed much more subcortical reward related activation. And the non-monogamous men did not show that at all, which I found very fascinating. So for the non-monogamous men, they had more cortical activation when looking at the romantic pictures, but none of the reward. And then the the monogamous men, their brains looked like they found it more rewarding. Mm -hmm. Um, I, of course, should have asked them, how much did you enjoy these pictures? I didn't. Um, That is a fatal flaw, I think, for that study. But uh, their brain activation indicates they may have liked it more than the non-monogamous men. And that's so interesting. And I think it suggest the possibility. And yes, of course, we need further research and, you know, also research looking at women and people of different sexual orientations and and so forth, Mm. you know, certainly more work to be done. But it suggests the possibility that, you know, 
to some degree, our brains might be, if you're okay using the term wired uh, differently when it comes to monogamy and non-monogamy. And I'm so glad you brought up the example of the voles. You know, you've got the prairie voles and the meadow voles, and they've done this really fascinating research, actually finding that if you tinker with their hormones, specifically with the hormone vasopressin, you can actually take the monogamous prairie voles and make them non-monogamous. And you can take the non-monogamous meadow voles and make them monogamous just by changing their their hormone levels. And I think that's so fascinating and points to this idea that, you know, maybe our mating orientations are controlled by hormones or differences in brain structure or something. And so when people say, you know, humans are designed or built for monogamy or, you know, they're built for non-monogamy, like, you know, that that's an overly simplistic idea. And it might be that, you know, people just kind of have these different mating orientations controlled by brain mechanisms or hormones. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I did want to also clarify, it's not the hormones themselves, it's the hormone receptor genes. So they yes. actually have to tweak the genes to turn them on and off so that they have more or less of the receptors. So, Because people always ask me, how can I make my partner more monogamous? And <laughs> you can't just like feed them vasopressin, it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, inject them with oxytocin, Darn. that doesn't work. Yeah, but I also think there's the, with neuroscience stuff, I think we have to always keep in mind the back and forth between our environment and our experiences and how that changes our brain. And so in my study, I think about the the different possibilities. Like, so yes, people could have been born with their brains reacting this way, or they could have experienced like rewarding romantic relationships in life that made them like seek that out, find it more rewarding, and then respond more positively. Whereas other people might be, uh, have found romantic relationships like they didn't go well or like they didn't like the vulnerability involved in them or whatever it is, or they just had bad experiences. And so they're like averse to, or not as interested in having the romance aspect. They're more interested in the sexual aspect. So I think it's, we can't really say if it's the biology or the social environment. I think it's always a combination of both. Yeah. Such an important point because there is that brain plasticity, right? Where Mm our brain changes in response Mm -hmm. to experiences that we have over the lifespan. And that's one of the tough things about some of these neuroscience studies is, you know, what is the causal variable here? And, you know, were people born with these differences in brain structure or was it molded as a result of their life experiences? So again, so much that we don't know Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we think we know (laughs) when it comes to sex. And, you know, since we're talking about the subject of hormones, you know, you you brought up this idea of oxytocin. You know, there are a lot of people who think that, you know, oxytocin is the love hormone. And if you just have more of it, you know, that that's going to promote more bonding with your partner. People also have all kinds of ideas about testosterone. Like if you abstain Mm -hmm. from sex and masturbation, that's going to boost your testosterone levels. So, what would you like to say to people about maybe some of their misunderstandings of these hormones and how they affect our sexuality? About hormones broadly, uh, one of the first things that my hormones and behavior prof in undergrad talked to us about is this idea about we often think that hormones cause things to happen. But the thing he first said the first day of class and kept repeating throughout the semester is hormones only increase the likelihood of something happening. Mm -hmm. So even if we're talking about a rat and we're injecting them full of testosterone, it's going to maybe increase the likelihood that that male rat is going to want to mate with a female rat, but it doesn't make them like immediately go mate with them. So that's the piece I think that 
often we miscommunicate or misunderstand about hormones, this idea that high testosterone equals more sexual desire. There's actually very little research on that. We know that if we have no testosterone, particularly for men, they're going to have low to no desire. But within a normal range of testosterone, there doesn't seem to be a correlation. And then with oxytocin, this is like my pet peeve (laughs) because people just want oxytocin to be like this miracle cure for Mm -hmm. all that ails us in our relationships. But most of the oxytocin research is done on animals. The stuff that's been done on humans has been quite limited. And in particular, the sample sizes are small. The manipulations are not often the best. But what one thing that does seem to be emerging is that the context for oxytocin is really important. So if you're in a situation where there's trust, you know, injecting or someone snorting oxytocin is going to make them trust that person more. But if you're in a situation where you see the person as the outsider or the other or someone you don't trust, it actually potentially can increase our feelings of distrust and, you know, rejection of people. And so, you know, if you're having problems in your relationship, snorting oxytocin is likely not (laughs) going to make you like your partner more. It might make you (laughs) dislike them more. Uh, Also, it can't make you do anything. I should be careful using that language. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, again, all such important points. And, you know, we hear in the media all the time that oxytocin is the love drug, the love hormone. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of gives the idea that it just has this one effect. And I think that's really the danger in labeling these hormones with just this sort of singular title. Like, for example, also labeling testosterone as the male sex hormone, right? All of these other things, it feeds those overly simplified misunderstandings about how hormones really interact with the human body. Now, there's one other line of research you've done that I just want to briefly dive into, which I think is fascinating, that looks at the link between disgust and sexual arousal. And there are some studies that have found that being sexually aroused reduces your disgust responses. Where So if you're already horny, things that you might otherwise perceive as gross become less so. And there are other studies, uh, including yours, that seem to suggest that if you're already disgusted to begin with, that makes it harder to feel sexual arousal. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you see this connection between sexual arousal and disgust. Sure. And the disgust and lust, we call, our paper was called Disgust Versus Lust. Great this title. is really it's Diana Fleischman's baby. Um, she got me interested in this disgust stuff back when we were in grad school together And essentially, the idea is if you think about sex, it's kind of disgusting, right? Like the body fluids, we make weird noises. If that was just happening on the street, that would be really weird. Or if someone's like body fluids got on you, that would be kind of disgusting. But in a sexual situation, we're, you know, slobbering on each other, we're like swapping saliva, there's body fluids, there's sweat. And so the idea there being, you know, there must be some way in which being aroused increases our disgust tolerance, or at least shifts our attention away from the disgusting stimuli. And as you said, that has been demonstrated. So higher levels of arousal tend to reduce our disgust responses. And in our study, we had people in multiple categories. So they either saw something disgusting or scary before an erotic video, or they watched an erotic video before ranking these disgusting or scary pictures. And in that case, we did find that watching or looking at disgusting pictures, and they were mostly like body-related disgust, that it absolutely reduced their 
response to the erotic video. (laughs) So getting yourself in that, reminding yourself of, you know, the possible pathogens. This is the theory behind it is, you know, there is a lot of risk involved for exposure to sexually transmitted infections, et cetera. And so kind of reminding people of disgust before they go in to watch an erotic film can lead them to have much lower levels of arousal. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. And then, you know, adding further complexity to that is the fact that people sort of vary in their trait level of disgust. You know, yes, some people yeah. just have this higher threshold for disgust than others. And, you know, other people are just very easily disgusted. And I've also seen some research finding that that might have implications for sexual difficulties, right? So if you're Mm -hmm. somebody who is just very easily disgusted all the time, that can make Mm -hmm. it very hard for you to get in the mood for sex, to have sexual desire. So you've got that individual variability piece here that's important. And then something else that I was just blogging about recently was when disgust itself becomes a turn on, which I think is another, you know, sort of fascinating piece of this, Mm -hmm. because, you know, some people will describe sexual fantasies to me where they're like, I'm doing this really disgusting thing, but it feels so good, right? And so, (laughs) you know, disgust itself can be a turn on for some Mm -hmm. people. So I don't know, any other thoughts there on, you know, know, sort of that link between disgust and arousal? Yes, Uh, this is not something that is research-based at all, but it makes me think of uh, how Dan Savage often says, like the things we fear the most are often the things that we develop kinks around. And I think of, I know two people with foot fetishes and growing up, they were like disgusted by feet. Like they found them so disgusting, but then somehow over time that has morphed into this arousing thing. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely think there's something to that, like turning the disgust into the erotic because it is forbidden uh, and repulsive, but then there's something curious about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting. I think a lot of this is also learned behavior, Mm -hmm. right, where it happens Mm -hmm. through conditioning principles. And Jim Faust has actually done some research on rats with this, where he's actually like conditioned rats to basically be turned on by the smell of death, literally. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. when male rats have their first sexual experience and that scent, I think it's called cadaverine, is present, then that facilitates their sexual arousal in, in future sexual encounters if it's present. But if it's not present, then it creates sexual difficulties, right? So, you know, this isn't something that just happens in humans. It can also happen in animals, which, you know, so fascinating, so much to Mm -hmm. explore there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Lisa Dawn, and for telling us what we don't know about sex. It was a pleasure to have you here. So can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and subscribe to your podcast? Sure. So the podcast is Do We Know Things? And it's available anywhere you can find podcasts. And you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at Do We Know Things. There's also a website, doweknowthings.com. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Lisa Dawn's fabulous podcast, Do We Know Things, if you want to learn more about the science of sex and all of the things you don't know about sex. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>